Our sermon this morning comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 6. I'll be reading a portion of that chapter, verses 6 through 16. Let's hear from the word of the Lord together. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the perfects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injuncture and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and, Dan and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, for the injunction you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by an agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I hope you have caught something at this point in the book of Daniel, that the overwhelming, the overwhelming sovereignty of God just seems to show itself again and again through this. And this isn't just to beat people on top of the head of God is sovereign, but, but rather it's actually providing a great sense of hope to people. The first recipients of the book of Daniel or of the prophet of Daniel would have received this book under great duress, under great political oppression, of feeling like they didn't have access to God. Yet in this book, they're able to see again and again and again that the Lord holds everything in his hands very tightly. Daniel to us is about kings and kingdoms, easily divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 6 and then chapters 7 through 12. Viewing chapters 1 through 6 is like watching a, a series of stories where these stories, though really chaotic, give a great sense of hope to those who would hear them. You can see the main characters being guided along by the very precious and careful hand of God. They're protected and some of them are even promoted as they're guided, and they're guided through intense trials that we've seen in the several chapters before this one. And the focus of Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is that there is a great battle between God's people and satanic kingdoms of the world. 
It's a continual battle between God's people and God's own enemies, very much before our eyes. Now today, just in a bit of review, God's sovereignty shows itself in many ways before us, and it'll show itself in many ways in this chapter. In chapter 1, you'd see God's sovereign protection of the young men, Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Aziriah. And in chapter 2, you see his sovereignty in giving Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, something that no one else could ever fathom. And in chapter 3, you'd see his sovereignty in the particular sparing of Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace. And then in chapter 4, you'd see God's sovereignty in reducing this mighty king Nebuchadnezzar by mere writing on the wall, causing him to shake and want nothing to be a part of what's in front of him. And in chapter 5, you see a sovereign writing on the wall before the ruler Belshazzar. And now here in chapter 6, Possibly the moment that we've all been waiting for, if you've ever been a part of children's ministry. Finally, you get to see Daniel in the lion's den, where God's sovereignty is in the possession of Daniel's life, over the life of Darius, and in the promise of the sacrifice of a coming Messiah. God's work over and in his creation is felt by all of us, whether we recognize it or not. Puritan pastor John Owen, in a sermon memorializing a whole county in English, or a whole county in England, having great revival and thousands of people coming to the Lord seemingly all at once, told this crowd that, that the Lord does miraculous things seemingly for three reasons. First, just to bring tremendous glory to himself, bringing all of these people to the awareness of him by his spirit but then also to save those particular people who we love so dearly. And then third, it causes other people just great awe, whether they are in the kingdom of God or outside of the kingdom of God. They're, they are seeing what is happening, and it causes them many to tremble, or many, like in the case of Daniel, to worship in awe. Like we see in Daniel 6, Daniel being saved, Darius would acknowledge God's ultimate glory. Just remember briefly the, the marks of poetry in a book that's narrative and form. You know, you're reading along a story and then all of a sudden these poems jump up at you. And, and for many of us, we just try to ignore, ignore poetry because we don't like poetry. These poems don't even rhyme. What is this even talking about? But whenever poems spike up in the midst of narrative, it's bringing our attention of a grander story that's being taken or that's taken place. In the book of Daniel, those poems are intended to stick out and encapsulate God's wondrous works. Though they're in different chapters, you know, you see them sprinkled out through the book of Daniel. And though they're there for various circumstances, our book's poems actually describe an ongoing theme. You can almost combine them all and make one long song about God's glory. Even God's enemies declare His mighty work. The, the enemy of Daniel in this passage will later declare he delivers, God delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. So we all know the events of what happens in chapter 6, don't we? We've all heard the story, but let me freshly tell you of Daniel in the lion's den. And here, I pray you'll see that if you're using an outline provided, you'll see three wonderful sovereign works of God. Three wonderful works of God at display in this chapter. The first one is this. Here's a wonderful work that God is doing in these people's lives. God is bringing Daniel through temptation. So God is bringing Daniel through temptation. 
a marvelous event. In chapter 6, it begins a new era under a new king. Kings come and go, but in our case, Daniel seems to outlast them all. Captured roughly six decades previous before this chapter, now in his, late, or now in his early 80s, Daniel is still being used by God and tempted by man. The kingdom has experienced a total takeover from the Babylonian heritage to now the Median Persian Empire, or the Medes as they're later called. This is where for some people the book might even fall apart because they get right up to the very first verse in this chapter and they read about Darius and they go, wait, Darius who? Who historically is Darius? The problem is historically, we don't know who Darius is in total. Darius the Mede is something that's not written about in anything beyond the book of Daniel. Belshazzar fell to the Persians on October 11th or 12th in 539 B.C. to Ugbaru, who commanded the Persian army but died weeks later, where Cyrus, the king of Persia, would have arrived to Babylon roughly around October 29th, 539 B.C. He appointed a man named Gubaru to rule over the kingdom. So Belshazzar fell to Ugbaru, who died, and Cyrus took the, took the reins as king of Persia, but appointed a man named Gubaru to rule the kingdom. But we still don't know who Darius is. Now, for many people, this causes them to just cast aside Daniel altogether. This is another bullet in their chamber of saying, see, the Bible isn't true. It doesn't even have all of its facts together. Now, historically, we might look in the text and see around the text historically, and that gives us five options of who Darius is. Let me just quickly take you through who these five speculations might be. The first option is, he's nobody. He didn't exist. Well, I would just reject that outright. The second option would be, Darius is another name for the son of Cyrus. And that's somewhat probable, but in Later in the book, it talks about how the son of or who the ruler of Darius would be is someone who's about 62 years old. Well, the son of Cyrus would be way below 62 years old, so we can't really say that it's the son of Cyrus. Third, an option would be that Darius the Mede is another name for Guberu, the governor of Babylon, appointed by Cyrus. That's pretty probable. Fourth, Darius the Mede is Cyrus. So their names are interchangeable, and people who promote this would actually translate, verse 28, you can gaze over there, that the reign of Darius, instead of and, the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, would be the reign of Darius, that is, using a different word, that is in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, this would be a really unique way to translate that passage, but that's also a possibility. Some ancient documents, fifthly, allude to a 14-month period where Cyrus ruled Babylon through a foreman. So rather than giving it to a governor, he would rule it through someone else, through a foreman who was later called Darius. So out of those five options, I definitely think the last three are the best. And I actually prefer the fourth one where, where Darius, the Mede, is Cyrus, just going by another use of a consonant or Darius the Mede is another name for Guberu, the governor of Babylon. So was he Guberu? Was he Cyrus? Was he a foreman? Yes, I think he was definitely one of those. I don't think we should ever doubt what this word says as being totally true. 
if we start discounting who was this person and who was that person, then we actually lose the argument of this book altogether. If we lose the argument of the book altogether, then why should we trust any of the other prophets that are being spoken about? We knew that Daniel was there. We knew that the other people were there too. So we can rightfully say and see that what's being told in this passage is very much true. And here's the reason why you should care about this five-point lesson on who this man is. If we trust that these words are true, then we should ask the Lord to transform our hearts through them. So every word in the Bible should mean something to you, as it's absolutely true. It's made without error, and it's for the purpose of changing your life. So with that being the case, Darius comes to the forefront as a new king before Daniel. It's clear that what we see here is a new era, but with the same problem. The battle between Satan's cohorts and God's faithful. And for Daniel, the sovereign hand of God is bringing him through temptation. But just in this narrative, there's a trap that's being set for Daniel. There's a trap that's being set here in verses 1 through 9. Daniel is obviously a popular person. We recognize his popularity because the new king in charge wanted to delegate a ton of responsibility throughout the kingdom. And you think of that, is he just bringing on a new sense of management? It might be that, but you've got to realize this kingdom is enormous, stretching all the way from Africa up through East Asia and around through Eastern Europe. There's a lot of land to maintain. There's a lot of people to control. So he has 120 satraps who would be like area governors or big city mayors. And Daniel was going to be placed above all of those. He was going to be within the cohort of three rulers, maybe three area presidents. But it says that the king, in these verses, it says the king had the intention of making Daniel like the mega president. And so all of these people, recognizing that Daniel has never belonged to this area. Daniel's never worshipped the way that they've worshipped. Daniel was never really a part of their lives. They, frankly, just don't like him. And they see within him that he's not someone who's easily attacked. Our text would show that he's not a criminal. He's not a bad guy. He doesn't treat people unfairly. So when they look at his heart, they see that he is someone who is faithful. So what they try to do is they try to go to the king and try to make a law specifically against Daniel. Look at what it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 7. All of these counselors and satraps and very important people, they came to the king and they said, O king, everyone agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or any man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So Daniel's popularity landed him a resentment among all of these other people, showing good courage to us that we would want to be like Daniel in our faithfulness. But recognizing that at the same time, Satan's cohorts or God's enemies will always try to root out God's people, always try to trip you up or make you fall. And here they go even so far as approaching the king on his own throne and saying, we have an idea of a new law. Anyone who prays is wrong. Anyone who prays anyone or towards anyone except for you, they should be thrown into a den of lions. Now, a den of lions, that wasn't just a permanent torture chamber. 
in this kingdom. Certainly it was used for that, but much like foxes would have been kept in, in long ago England where they would have used them to hunt, they would have used these beastly lions of things that the king would love to hunt. It's a kind of a weird side hobby, but also kind of intense at the same time. But when the king was not wanting to go hunting and he had people who were against his throne, they would be thrown into the pit of lions. You might think of this as the execution chair. The intensity. Now imagine this. The intensity of just praying as you thrown into this pit. Not praying to any god. You could be praying to multiple gods. You could be praying to different things or worshiping privately in different ways, but it would still get you into the pit. You'll notice that there are similarities between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. It's not just in similarity of language. You'll notice that there is repetition again. In chapter 3, there were all these repetitions of people falling down and worshiping these golden statues or this golden statue. There was the repetition of reminding people that they wanted to fall down and worship the golden statue, fall down and worship the golden statue. And the repetition there was intended to show you that they were actively trying to force people to worship anyone but the Lord. And here, somewhat in the same way, there's a great repetition of these laws that go without loopholes. Laws that go without loopholes. Laws that can't be taken back. And what's different about chapter 3 versus chapter 6 is chapter 3 has an active pursuit of unholiness, and then chapter 6 just has a passive pursuit of unholiness. So Daniel would be sinning if he's not worshiping God. Versus in chapter 3, those three friends would be sinning and actively pursuing someone else. What this exposes is that Daniel's friends were asked to commit an act of sin, and they refrained from it, and it nearly cost them their lives. But here, Daniel is being told to do nothing for 30 days. Now think about that. If all of a sudden there was a law established in our country, and all the law said was, don't pray for 30 days, how many of us would be pretty good at that? Or how many of us that would tear us apart? Remember what prayer is, friends, that, that by the gift and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you have access to the very Father, God the Father who hears you and understands you. He knows about the widows. He knows about the poor. He knows about what's going on in your job. He knows about the fear that you have, and you have access to him. And then what if someone said, don't pray? In fact, don't not just pray at City Hall, not just pray at dinner at Chili's, but just don't pray at all. Friend, I wonder what you and I would do if that were the case. The penetrating question would be, would anything change in your life? And would you let it? All Daniel had to do, what we've seen with people before him, all Daniel had to do to not be murdered is to fit in. Right? It'd be like being in another country and you're at another ball game in another country and another national anthem goes up. You're just going to kind of blend in, right? You'd stand up with everyone else. Maybe you don't salute, but you at least look appropriate. In chapter three, they were told just to bow down. They didn't even have to change their minds or change their hearts. And here they were told they couldn't bow or it would cost them their lives. So, so Darius signs the decree. Our text doesn't just say he deliberated about it, but it was so profane that he just went ahead and did it. It's, maybe he didn't understand about the statue in chapter 2. 
Maybe, maybe he didn't understand that he was next on the chopping block. You know, others were the golden part of the statue, and now he's like the silver part or the bronze part, where surely he knows that his life will come crashing down. But it makes us wonder what we would do in this place. Daniel had real faith, and it's here that we see how God brought him through temptation. Seeing how God brought him through temptation, it was by keeping Daniel, it was by keeping his heart or his eyes on the Lord. It wasn't by being distracted by anything else around him. It wasn't by doing other things with his hands, but rather he was brought through temptation by keeping his eye on the prize, if you will, by keeping his eyes on the Lord, by praying. In, chapter, in verse 10, it says that knowing full well that the decree had been signed. So it's not just something that happened on Monday and the mail didn't get to him by Wednesday. It's that he knew what had happened and he prayed anyway. Possibly because he knew exactly what prayer is. John Bunyan helps us know what prayer is by saying prayer is a shield to the soul. It's a sacrifice to God and a scourge to Satan. It's, it's combat in its emphasis. It's glorious in its pointing. Prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. Daniel made it his practice to pray three times a day facing towards Jerusalem. It said that he had his window open. Perhaps this was being influenced by his memory of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. When Solomon dedicated the temple and offered his prayers toward God, he hoped that God's people would follow him and praying toward this place. So people, as they would be scattered around, whether by exile or rather by their own, they would pray towards the temple because it was seen in that time that within the temple was the very presence of God. So they would point their hearts towards Jerusalem, and, and Daniel would have been following this pattern. It was nothing superstitious going on, but this expression of, well, I want my heart to be directed towards the Lord. And all he had to do was not do it. Now, we don't know whether Daniel had spies in his house. Maybe someone was reading his mail. Maybe he was one of those weird people that prays out loud. Right, and people heard him outside the window. I say that sarcastically because it is okay to pray out loud. You really can. You can do it. Be the weird person. We don't know how he was caught, but we know that he was definitely caught. But one of the things that is remarkable about how he was praying is that he was praying with thankfulness to God, even in times of his trouble, even recognizing the consequences of what would happen if he kept praying. He didn't pray just that he would be delivered, though probably so. He didn't pray just that he would have wisdom, though definitely so. But he also prayed with thankfulness to God. Can you imagine that? Imagine a tornado coming towards your house. And like all Oklahomans, we'll be outside watching it. But imagine a tornado coming towards your house. You would probably be tempted to not pray in thankfulness, would you? But be reminded of what Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says. Do not be anxious about anything. This guy's facing lions. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Daniel offers up thanksgiving. Daniel's supplication, even though he's in a crunch, is not without thanksgiving. He cries for help. His cries for help are prefaced by worship and adoration and praise and thanksgiving. Again, this is a man who is conscious of what God has given him, and he offers up thanksgiving with his prayers for God to rescue him. 
an astounding instruction for us. Prayer was known in Daniel's lives, it says, from his early days there in verse 10. Though politically powerful, prayer was not beneath him. He could have made political moves in this, couldn't he? He could have called in favors from other people. He could have fled the country. Or he could have just not prayed. But instead, he prays it was not beneath him. And even though he was older, remember, about 80 years old, this guy's been through a lot. A former slave keeps getting promoted, keeps being asked to do something he doesn't want to do, but he still goes to the Lord in prayer. It's not only that it's not beneath him, but it's something that fuels him. In the midst of political oppression, Daniel's response was obedience. His response was faith. His response was to trust in God to do his glorious work. Basically, he was brought through temptation gloriously and wonderfully because he was filled with God's power. Jerry Bridges, the late author, says God does not give us his power so that we might feel good about ourselves. He gives us his power so that we can obey him for his sake and for his glory. As a Christian, it's almost impossible to read this far into the story without thinking of the person of Jesus himself. He too had an excellent spirit. Daniel was known and thought highly of others around him because people looked at him and saw something a little bit different. The prayer that we have for all of our lives as Christians, right? That people would see that there's something different about my life and then I'd be able to tell them about Jesus. Jesus was known for his excellent spirit. He came as the very wisdom of God. And when he was conspired against, like Daniel, he too, in his full integrity, held fast. The entire Sanhedrin conspired against him. The chief priest rose up in allegiance with other worldly powers to undo him. Yet his response was to go to the garden to pray and to align himself and attune himself and to remind himself of why he was sent to seek, to serve, and to die. The parallels to Jesus will only grow in this chapter, but we're reminded that Daniel was brought through temptation and he was led to prayer. One thing that just kind of came to my mind again and again last night is I just want to address those of you who involve yourself, and I do not mean this negatively, those who involve yourself in politics, whether you're an active consumer or maybe you're a politician, or maybe you participate with other people in politics. I actually like listening to politics. I like studying it. I like reading about it. No one in the room listens to more podcasts than me about it. But I want to encourage you, does your pursuit of politics show itself more in your panic or more in your prayer? As this person or that person pops up on the ballot, it is fun to see these gladiators go on and on. We see it in every debate. Like, we love the sucker punches, right? But do other people see our panic or do they notice our prayer? Recognize where Daniel was in the midst of politics. Not only was he in politics, but also politics was very much against him now. Not just saying that you don't get a tax deduction anymore, but actually saying your life is being deducted. Yet he went to the Lord in prayer. 
So soapbox over. This should encourage and direct those of us who believe in Jesus. All of us who believe in Jesus. We have access to the sovereign Father and should exercise the gift of a spirit given to us. We should turn to pray in the highs and lows of life. We must be ready to obey him. Even if obedience is in some way outlawed. Recognize that the most notable thing about Daniel's life happened when he turned really, really old. We don't know the specific age, but he was definitely older in life. And the attacks just kept coming to him. I think one of the things that I deal with most with those who turn 50s or 60s is they just feel that the waves of life never let go of them. They never, they never release. They just keep coming. If your kids were a big problem, but they moved away, oh man, now you have grandkids and they're a big problem for you. And if you are lucky enough to grow old enough, you have great-grandkids. Daniel pursued in faith the Lord's glory and honor, even to the point where it would cost him his life. But the Lord, in his wonderful work, led him through this. So three wonderful works of God. First, God bringing Daniel through temptation. Second, God loosening the grip of another king. Now, you generally, won't think, uh, you generally won't think that the king would be losing power within chapter 6. He starts out fully in charge, and he doesn't wind up not in charge. But does he lose any of his power throughout the chapter? The drama of the text shows us that the ground under Darius's feet isn't so sturdy after all. Remember, he thinks highly of Daniel. He loves Daniel. He wanted to promote Daniel above anyone else. And honestly, he may not even know Daniel that well. He hasn't known him for decades and decades, but still, there's something about this Daniel that I love, and I want to put him in charge of everyone. And then what happens? The guy passes one law, and Daniel breaks it. His chief helper, his mighty assistant, defies him. And what did Darius do when he heard about this? Notice the difference between verse 10 and verse 14. Daniel heard the law and prayed to God in verse 10. And then Darius heard of Daniel's breaking of the new law in verse 14. And what does it say? It says that he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. The king was looking for ways to not have this law carry out. Oh, it bothered him so much. How could this person do this? But is there a way that maybe no one knows about Daniel praying? Maybe I can remove this law. But then these haters of the Lord reminded him that once you pass the law, the law has to carry out. Just doing their due diligence. The king's biggest supporter defies him. A brother one day, an antagonist the next. Here is Daniel in perfect calmness, continuing his habit of godly devotion. And here is the empire's king freaking out over what to do. Daniel's enemies had done their job. They got him. But the king's grip on his authority is loosening, isn't it? He's not even in control of the people he appointed to be his own satraps. Daniel, to me, comes across like a mature athlete. It's as if he always knows what to do. There are habits that are just so built up in him that he can't not do those. I remember in junior high, I went to a baseball camp where the, the coach of the baseball camp said, once you cross the chalk, so for those of you who aren't familiar with baseball, once you go into the field, all you can count on are your habits. That's all you can rely on. There's no more coaching going on. There's no more soft toss going on. There's no more practice or film review after that. Once you cross the chalk, all you can count on are your habits. And this is brilliant. 
Remind yourself, there are athletes or artists who can do things that look so surreal to us. A diving catch, an amazing expression in a dance, a solo where someone hits a note that we didn't even think possible. And we see it as remarkable, maybe as a fluke or a one-time thing, but that only came after hundreds of hours and thousands of hours of practicing and doing the mundane things. And when Daniel was pushed up against a wall or pushed over a pit filled with lions, all he expressed was his habits. Prayer. Think of that. Not sharp words, not a good rebuke, but on his knees with his eyes towards the Lord. In Daniel, you see a picture of power. A man who is weak toward the world is really strong in and by the Lord's will. Daniel is a picture of someone the world may deem weak, but is fueled by strength of the living God. And the king to us in this passage is just the opposite. It's a stark contrast, isn't it? The mighty monarch reduced to mere misery over someone breaking a law. But Daniel, under the condemnation of death, calm, composed, and faithful to the Lord, it's a picture of the difference between the joy in the kingdom of heaven and the joy or the unrest in the kingdom of the world. One to the world looks incredibly foolish, doesn't it? Man, just don't pray for a month. And then one looks increasingly strong. We all know what happens now. Daniel broke the new law and the king had no choice but to throw this great prophet, this helper of a great nation, this asset to the throne. Verse 16 says that the king here demanded or commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declares to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Now many of us might think that this passage talks about the king pointing his finger at him, almost mocking him. May your king deliver you. But I think just in the words that are being expressed from this king to Daniel before, or actually this king hoping that whoever Daniel's God is will deliver him from the den of lions. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Now, there is so much that could be said of this small portion, but here in verse 17, there is an interesting and peculiar thing that happens. You you and I may not realize it, just reading over it at first. The king's signet ring is used to seal a stone and is placed on that stone on top of the lion's den. So after the stone would have been rolled on top of the pit, so that Daniel wouldn't be able to crawl out, nor would anybody else be able to crawl in and help Daniel out, the stone was sealed by the king's ring after he's in there so that everyone will know that the king saw this happen and gave permission for Daniel to be in the lion's den and also to let everyone know that Daniel couldn't escape nor could anyone go in. No doubt. And this, in my opinion, I think the passage started out cool already, but this is where the passage really ramps up in awesomeness. No doubt this passage bears such a strong likeness to Matthew chapter 26, verses 65 and 66, where after Jesus was crucified and died and was placed in a tomb, Pilate said to them, you have a guard and go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal 
on the stone. Just as Daniel was sealed in the lion's den, so also Christ was sealed in the tomb. And this was the passive ruler's way in both cases to seal the fate of Jesus and of Daniel, to keep doubters from thinking that man had intervened. This is by the command of whomever is in charge of this person. They cannot get out and you cannot go in. And I, as the authority on earth, declare it to be so. But in both cases, that human sealing led to Another wondrous work, didn't it? Now in the text, the powerful grip of Darius has all but been tightened. It has been completely undone. In verse 18, we see him not in anger like his predecessors. He was terrified of losing Daniel, even to the point where he went off to sleep and fasted. A king wouldn't fast before bed. He would have all the enjoyment of the world around him, but he was fasting from the agony and he didn't get any sort of sleep. The calmness of the world was nothing a part of his own life. The picture before us when placed side by side is designed to show us the powerlessness of the king in the world and the calmness of the child of God. There are three wonderful works in this passage. First, God bringing Daniel through temptation Second, God loosening the grip of another king. But then third, finally, and obviously the story ending that we all know, God saving Daniel's life. In verse 19, it says, at daybreak, the king wasted no time. At daybreak, he rushed to the den to see if Daniel had survived the night. Remarkably, the narrative omits the viewpoint of Daniel entirely. We don't know what he was thinking. We don't know what he was doing down there until he tells us later on. Nothing is expressed about the night with lions. But with the king, we too arrive at the den, not knowing where Daniel, whether Daniel is dead or alive. And even before the king got there, it says that as he came near to the den, Darius cries out in anguish in verse 20, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? For the second time now, God is questioned by the king. Also, God has hoped for in his deliverance by the king. Either way, we see that God is on trial here, just as Daniel was on trial. Would God save Daniel and prove himself to love his people? Or would this God who Darius wouldn't have believed in or known about or understood, would it just leave this person to be mauled by the lions? It was one thing for this faithful exile to practice daily prayers. It is Quite another thing to know that his God has the power to save him from a gruesome death in the lion's den. And this is partly an image to us Christians as what makes Christianity so unique. It's not just that we have access to God. It's not just that God loves his people and loves his creation. But it is also that God very much saves his people from their own death. God in the, in the person of Jesus was crucified on the cross and raised from the dead, paying the penalty that you and I deserve with our own lives. And by him raising Jesus from the grave, he promises to raise us from the grave as well. It's not just that God loves. It's also that God is completely victorious over sin and despair. As the king's cry made its muffled way down to the pit, from the other side came a booming answer. We see it in verse 21 and 22. O king, live forever. 
<laughs> Almost like mocking the other guys who came to him before him. Like, oh, king, live forever. By the way, we have a great new law that's going to put our friend into the pit. Oh, king, live forever. He said, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. Daniel's God proved ruling and reigning. Daniel is alive and vindicated. Well, Darius in verse 23 was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. And Daniel was taken up out of the den, it says, with no injury whatsoever found on him because he had trusted in God. And then Darius, in a fury, would throw God's enemies into the pit where they would be mauled to death. Quite the twist in just a subtle law on prayer. Those who follow it and those who disobey it. On one hand, Daniel says that the Lord spared him because he was innocent before God and before the king. And on the other hand, the narrator of this text tells us that Daniel was spared because of his faith in God. This story teaches us what it means to have faith in God. It doesn't mean we avoid pits. It doesn't mean that pits will never come. But when pits do come, we have faith in God to do his goodwill. Daniel's faith saves him here. Daniel's trust in God was the instrument by which he received the blessings of God in this passage. Like Noah and the ark, by placing themselves in the ark, they were delivered from the flood. Or like us in Christ, when we place our trust in Christ, we are delivered from what our sins deserve. Christian, know that this is the same for us on the last day. When the Lord Jesus places you before the throne of God on the last day, and when accusers will come at you and say, he did this, she did this, he's inadequate because of this, she's inadequate because of this. Christian, you are going to be declared innocent of all charges brought against you because you will have been glorified and there will be nothing evil inside of you. You will have a new body and a refreshed soul. You would have, will have been seen as redeemed and justified because of Jesus' work on the cross. And at the same time, the foundation of your redemption will be the work that Christ did on your behalf. It's not just that he made you new, but that he paid what you should have paid for yourself so that you come before the throne and the Lord will look at you and say, you belong to my son, come and dine. There's a place for you at the table. Grounding yourself in the vindication of Jesus on that last day, here we see a testimony of what this will look like in verses 22 and 23 as a pure picture of those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Satan attacks you and indicts you of wickedness, you will be found innocent because of your trust in Christ Jesus. Friend, if you're not a Christian here today, that's what we believe. That's what we would call on you and beg of you and ask of you to also believe. Because standing before the throne on our own, it's not good enough. Doing good things like Daniel did, it's not good enough. But actually having the Lord's grace cover us and keep back what we justly deserved is all that we have hope in. And it's what we, have, it's what we hope that you will have hope in too. Friend, take a large step back and notice the overwhelming picture of chapter 6. A man serving the Heavenly Father was falsely accused of wrongdoing by his own co-workers. And this earthly ruler was given no choice but to find him guilty and throw him into a pit to be killed. You're led to see Daniel as an example. And you should read this passage and see Daniel as an example. You should pray like Daniel prayed. You should live like Daniel lived. You should have courage like Daniel had. 
But see, friend, oh my goodness, see what this text is actually pointing us to. Christ Jesus, the very Son of God, came to this earth to seek his people and to serve his Father. And the religious leaders at that time hated him so much that they kept looking for ways to twist the law so that they could capture him and keep him away from what he was trying to do. And they finally caught him. They finally captured him and they brought him before Pontius Pilate for trial. Then giving him over to wrathful hands, Pilate placed him in the hands of torturers who placed him on a cross and there he was crucified. Then there he was placed in a pit, left to die, left forever, where a stone would hold him in and keep others out. For as Daniel was brought out of the den that had been sealed by the official rings of those in power, it was so too that Jesus was raised from that tomb, raised from that grave, but not by any other man, not by an angel. But the Lord Jesus was raised from the tomb which had been sealed by those around him and showed himself and bestowed himself on others as being the right ruler of the world. But notice the difference. So there are clear parallels between Daniel chapter 6 and Jesus dying and being raised from the dead. Notice the difference though. Jesus was actually perfect. Daniel was seen as faithful. Daniel was seen as a good guy. But Daniel was thrown into the pit because of his own apparent sins. Whereas Jesus was perfect. And Jesus was crucified. And Jesus was thrown into a tomb. But not for his sins, but for yours. The reality that he did all of this. We think of the terror that surrounded the lion's den. And the reality that the Lord Jesus himself came sought, served to the point where he died on the cross and was placed in a tomb for you, Christian. Unbeliever, this can be for you too. The Bible is clear that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is your Lord, that, that you can have the joy that the rest of us have when we see cases like this in the Bible and go, yeah, Daniel in the lion's den is pretty awesome, but wait till we get to Matthew. Notice the difference. Notice the similarities. An angel came and protected Daniel, but Jesus willfully died. He willfully bore the wrath of God in order to free you from your sins. Into the wrathful lion's den he went so that you and I will never face it. Notice the similarities and the differences. Like Daniel, we should live. And like Daniel, we should have hope in God's deliverance from wrath. Our hope is found in the one who, as verse 27 cries out, our hope is in the one who delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Like Daniel in our sin would go to the pit, but because of Jesus, we will be raised from it forever. Finally, it to conclude in verses 25 through 27, there is Darius and his confession of God's sovereignty. Darius basically says here that a mighty fortress is Daniel's God. He is sovereign over all. And so again, we have for the third time a king of Babylon confessing in poetic, beautiful form, the very sovereignty of God over all things. And just a short time after establishing a law saying that no one could pray towards the living God is now worshiping him. There are so many lessons that we can learn from this passage. It's a passage of encouragement to the persecuted 
believers to stand firm. This would have been another incredible lesson for them to see their God bringing his faithful man through temptation and watching a king lose his grip on control. It's also a call to spiritual integrity. The one who was able to live through this torture was the one who was placing his full trust in the Lord. To you who are hard-pressed by the culture around you, in your work, in your home, in your everyday life, with the friends that you have around you. God's word doesn't say that you should just stand firm, but it shows how you can. And by his spirit, attuning yourself to him, your will to his, by the prayer, through the access of the son. It's a reminder that God is in complete control over all of our situations because he is sovereign in our lives, in our vocations, in our ministries, in our relationships. We can serve him without fear of evil's possession because the head of the serpent has been crushed. Beloved, the pursuit of holiness shown throughout Daniel is completely worth it. Because God is sovereign, we should trust him. We should believe him and put our faith in him. The early church and even the modern persecuted church would see Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den as a foretaste of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And by that, According to 1 Corinthians 15, in mind, a foretaste of their own resurrection. Because by the work of the Savior, the pit is empty. So we write and sing songs like, Give to our God immortal praise. Mercy and truth are all His ways. Wonders of grace to God belong. Repeat His mercies in your song. We're reminded of the repeated poetic nature of this book. He sent His Son with power to save from guilt and darkness and the grave. Wonders of grace to God belong. Repeat his mercies in your song. Friend, in eagerness, I tell you to put your faith in Christ Jesus. Put your faith in the one whom Daniel prayed to. Put your faith in the one who delivers everyone from your sins. Stand not on your own power, but receive God's gift and his free grace. Call on him like we were summoned in our call to worship this morning. Call on him. All you who are weary, let's now go to him in prayer. Our Father, we are amazingly reminded of your careful work in Daniel's life and see it literarily as a foretaste of what also happened in our own lives. In love you came, in love you died, in love you were raised, and in love you reigned. Our Lord, we in amazement and with thankfulness see ourselves a part of it. Shape us and mold us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.